quickly again. Uh, Lord, it's your spirit that accomplishes your work. And on one hand, as we declare your praises later in song, again, uh, we want to have tongues of ready writers, Psalm 45, hearts that overflow with thanksgiving. Right now, Lord, as we're looking at your word together, we want to have hearts that are open to hear what you have to say to each one of us, no more and no less, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in 1981, there was a murder trial right here in Topeka. It had made lots of news. It was a dramatic event. And there's a man uh, identified routinely as a Mennonite, and that was because he was religious. He was, he was a very religious person, so the stories all mention that he was a Mennonite. And uh, he was on trial for murder. And the facts of the case were never in dispute. So the defendant in in the presence of 15 witnesses, shot his employer eight times and killed him. I don't know if anyone else here was in Topeka at the time or remembers this story. So the facts were never in dispute. So you can imagine the chagrin of the prosecutors when uh, the jury came back in less than one hour and, and found him not guilty. And uh, this made front page news uh, on the results of that. And on one hand, you say, did he really shoot and kill his employer? And you say, he absolutely shot and killed his employer. And yet the jury said, absolutely not guilty. He walked free. (laughs) Now, not to be too coy, the reason was the defense argued successfully, very successfully, that the man who had killed his employer was in fear for his life, and in fact, this was in self-defense, and that his employer had been abusing him in uh, perverse ways and had threatened to kill him in a very grotesque manner. And this guy, uh, the defense showed the jury convincingly that he feared for his life, and it was out of that that he shot and killed the employer. Now, this is not a perfect comparison, but what, what I want to get at here is there's, there's real action, there's a real claim of guilt, and in some sense, there's, there's reality behind the claim. This person took the other person's life. And then, and then the jury comes back and says, not guilty, not guilty. And this should be a theme that's near and dear to Christians' hearts, to be sure. We're going to look at Psalm 51 this morning. And I just want to front end it uh, with a couple of thoughts. <clears throat> if you read 1 Timothy 1, Paul the Apostle identifies himself as the worst of sinners. And it's not because of immorality. He's religious and he'd persecuted the church. He'd said no to God and God's plans until God struck him down and said, you're mine, you're on my business now. So Paul says one key reason that he specifically had been saved by God was to demonstrate to the world that there was no sin that would keep a sinner from forgiveness before God. That God would forgive the worst of sinners in saving faith to make that sinner his child. 1 Timothy 1. Well, you get to Psalm 51 and you've got a lesson that's similar but looking at a different group of people. Psalm 51 is about King David's sin, grotesque sin, as we'll see, and God's willingness to forgive David. And where 1 Timothy 1 assures the sinners that are out of God's fellowship that he'll forgive them and bring them into the family of faith as well, 
Psalm 51 tells those that are already in the family of faith committing sin that there's no sin for the believer, for those who already belong to God, that God won't forgive as well. Psalm 51 is really important for us for this reason. A lot of times Christians labor under a guilt that God wants to remove. And so what I, it's something like this. I've done something and I feel really bad about it. And even though I've confessed it, I still feel bad about it. I can't get over this sense of guilt. And Psalm 51 shows us, it's really a demonstration. It's a, it's a great example of what it looks like for believers when we have sinned, big or little, of taking that sin to God in faith and knowing we can go away not only forgiven, but restored, and in fact, have joy and meaningful service and fellowship again with others, that we aren't sidelined for the rest of our life because of our sins. So Psalm 51 is a huge, hugely important psalm. It's a penitential psalm because in it, David's, David's coming to God and he's telling God in penance or in sorrow for his sin, Lord, I've done some terrible things and I'm begging you, I'm asking you, but based on your grace alone, not my worthiness, I'm asking you to forgive me. Alan Ross front loads the psalm this way. This is his brief description. Even the vilest offenders among God's people can appeal to God for forgiveness from sin, for moral restitution, and for a joyful life of fellowship and service for God if they in humble self-surrender base their appeal on God's nature, the praise that will redound to God, and the benefit of God's theocratic program. Now, Ross is not mentioning this, so we do, though. Uh, Psalm 51 is unique for a couple of reasons, but he, he's not saying based on the sacrifice. We'll talk about that later. But we all know the only reason God can forgive sin justly, he's compassionate, he's merciful, but he can't leave justice aside through forgiveness it, it's all always predicated on jesus death on the cross for our sins so all forgiveness ultimately predicated on jesus death on the cross for our sins the setting for psalm 51 and psalm 32 is second samuel 11 and 12 and so briefly this is the background this is what david is referring to when he brings in psalm 51 uh, in the spring of the year when kings go to war david didn't he hung around in Jerusalem, and while he was there, he sees a lovely young lady bathing on her rooftop, and the lovely young lady is Bathsheba, and she's the wife of one of David's most loyal servants and most capable warriors, Uriah the Hittite. And David brings Bathsheba to himself, sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant, and this is a problem. So he hopes through trickery to get Uriah to come back and assume that the baby that Bathsheba is now carrying is his, and it doesn't work. And so he tells through a messenger, uh, through Uriah himself, which makes it almost doubly bad, uh, to tell Joab secretly, carries a message and says to Joab, hey, put Uriah in the worst place of fighting so that he will be killed. So David's going to have him killed through the enemy, through the Ammonites. That's exactly what happens. Well, months later, God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan tells David a fabricated story that sort of point by point 
mirrors what David had done. And David is incensed, rightly so, and he says, that man is worthy of death. And this famously, this is Nathan's response. This is 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 9. Nathan said to David, you imagine if you're David, you're incensed about this sin that, he's, that hasn't really happened, and Nathan points his finger and says to you, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. That's the background. That's what David's referring to. Psalm 51 is based on the undeniable facts that King David was guilty of adultery and murder, and yet, from his own compassion and mercy, God declares David not guilty. We're going to look at the song in five sections. I hope you have a study sheet, by the way, and a short conclusion. And I want to mention, too, the forgiveness that we're looking at in this psalm today is vertical. It's vertical. It's not horizontal. This isn't about, I've, I've harmed my neighbor, my friend, someone at church. What does horizontal forgiveness and restoration look like? That's not what this song is dealing with. This is strictly vertical. It's the relationship with, between myself and God. That's what's at stake in Psalm 51. Uh, so if you have your app or your Bible open, Psalm 51, uh, the introductory line there says, To the choir master, a psalm of David... Now think about this, if you're David, you've got this, this sin, it'd be weighty, it'd be shameful, it'd be embarrassing, and yet after the fact, you write a song about it, because you want others in the community of faith to get the benefit of what you did and how God responded. So this was not written in a corner, you know, in a diary that no one would see, when David wrote the song, it was meant to be sung by people in the temple to gain the benefit from what had gone on in David's life. It says, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So that first section we're going to look at, verses 1 through 4, David's initial plea. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, Lord, whatever you say is appropriate. I, I'm, I'm owning up to what I've done. When David approaches God here for forgiveness and for restoration, he does so with no thought that God owes him something. So it's, it's Lord, based on your compassion, on your mercy, that's my only hope for forgiveness and restoration here. Verse 1, have mercy because of your loyal love, your great compassion. 
verse 2, David asked God to cleanse him, and we're going to take this up in verses 7 through 12, about not only forgive me, Lord, but, but do something in me and for me that I can't do for myself. And the basis of David's plea for forgiveness is based on God and his willingness to forgive. So David's making the request humbly, but it's on God's side to do anything about it, to answer that or not. David makes no excuses for his sins. This is a big thing. So as a model for us on restoring fellowship to God vertically, David makes no excuses for his sin. And in fact, he uses five different words to own his guilt. David broke, you remember David, Psalm 19, David loves God's law, God's word. And part of God's law was the Ten Commandments. And David directly broke at least four of the Ten Commandments in what he'd done. There's murder, there's adultery, there's theft, and there's coveting. So he, when he comes to God, he's owning fully. So in his, his coming to God for forgiveness, he's confessing the way things really are. He's not sugarcoating it. He's not pointing to anything else that would excuse him. He says, I'm guilty, and this is what I did. So verse 1 and 3, he says, my transgressions. So that would be my rebellious acts, my acts of rebellion against you. In verse 2, 5, and 9, my iniquity, my moral perversity. In verses 2 and 3, my sin, kind of the general term for for sin or wrongdoing, missing the mark. In verse 4, he says, what I've done is evil, ethically wicked. And then in verse 14, which we'll see later, he says, I'm guilty of blood guiltiness. I've wrongly taken the life of someone else. So David does in Psalm 51 what God tells us to do in 1 John 1, 9. When, it's, when, when uh, the Apostle John tells us, confess our sins the thought is we tell God what we've done fully without equivocation no excuse and we own it <clears throat> excuse me and we take God's view of what we've done so the confession is we're agreeing with God that what we've done is wrong and that's exactly what David does so no excuse no blame on anyone else no shading the truth it's absolutely out in the open. This is what I did, and I'm fully owning it before God. We admit what we've done clearly and entirely. We agree with God that what we've done in thought, word, or deed, what we've done or failed to do, falls short of God's righteous judgment. So confession fully, clearly, entirely, saying what we've done, agreeing, it's sin. Now David says something that could be a little bit misleading in verse 4. He says, against you, so he's speaking to God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David's not saying he hasn't wronged other people in this process. But what he's saying is that ultimately God is the one that's been offended. Or we could say it this way, God is the one that's always most offended. So David harmed Bathsheba through adultery and the murder of her husband. He killed, he harmed Uriah through murder. But David's sin is primarily against God. Sin is always against God. In every sin, God is the one most sinned against. This doesn't negate the reality of the harm to others, but it says God is always the one in view when restoration needs to take place. Have you ever heard someone say, maybe around um, 
sometimes legislation or just what's going on in culture. If you heard someone say, adults, uh, what's done between consenting adults, there's no harm, there's no foul. Uh, so consenting adults. So if I say consenting adults consent to immorality or adultery, and we say, well, there's no harm because we haven't hurt anyone. We're both agreeing to do this together. But that absolutely negates the fact that they are creatures who have come from God's hand and they always owe God a right living. They always owe God this right relationship to God and what he counts right or wrong. And so it's as if God doesn't exist. But God does exist and all sin is ultimately sin against God himself. We may speak evil of another person, we may impugn their integrity, but we sin against God. We may assault another person, we may physically harm them, but we sin against God. We may agree with another person to do wrong and say there's no harm, but we still sin against God. God is always the offended party regarding sin, and David knows it, and it's only God who can cover David's sin or your sin and mine and forgive us. Look at verses 5 and 6. David is here, he's not only honest about what he's done, but he's also confessing, Lord, my sin doesn't begin or end, <clears throat> excuse me, with this history. My sin didn't begin there and it won't end there. So very specifically, I'm confessing to this sin, but he goes beyond that in verses 5 and 6. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So verse 5, David was conceived or born in sin. Now he's not impugning his mother or his father. He's not saying my sin is their fault. What he is acknowledging is, as a descendant of Adam, inherent in my nature that I can't escape, and friends, none of us can either, I'm a sinner because of who and what I am. I sin because I'm a sinner. Sinning is the natural fruit of, of me by my very nature. I can't escape it. So David's owning, it's true I did these sins specifically, but that sprang from the fact that I'm a sinner by my very nature. I sin because I'm a sinner. This is developed, by the way, from Paul and Romans especially. By the way, is it hard to look at a little baby and say they're a sinner? <laughs> it is. I get it. And I'm, I'm good with that. We've all been children, and many of us have had children. Do you have to teach anybody how to sin? You, you, you don't teach it. It's there, right? It's just waiting to be expressed. Alan Ross says this, The verse does not mean that a little baby is a wicked sinner, but it does mean that everyone who's born is born in a state or a condition of sin, and that state unchecked will naturally lead to acts of sin. Sinners sin. It's a given. In Romans 1, 2, and 3, right up through the, the first half of Romans 3, the Apostle Paul develops the thought that there's none righteous before God not because somehow we've all sinned in the same way or to the same degree, but simply by nature we can't do right ultimately before God because we're sinners by our very nature. Verse 23, all sin and fall short of God's standards. 
And Paul agrees with David, if you go forward in Romans to verse 18 in chapter 7, Paul says effectively the same thing David says. He says, nothing good is in me that is in my sinful nature, in the nature I have by birth. There's nothing good in me. In fact, Scripture is clear that it says we can do nothing to please God based on what we have by birth. We're sinners by nature, cut off from God by birth. Ephesians 2, 1 speaks to that. David understood that he was sinful because he was sinful by nature, not just because he had acted heinously towards another man and his wife. All of us sin because we are sinners by nature. Now, I do want to say, as Christians... We have had, past tense, a spiritual new birth. So as Christians, we, we haven't lost our sinful disposition as long as we're in these bodies, but we have a new nature that's created, Scripture says, in righteousness, the life of Christ, that life in us, doesn't sin. It can't sin. It's Christ's life. And this is why in Romans 7 and Galatians 5, it brings up this notion that for the Christian, there's this internal conflict or fight because I have my old sinful self that doesn't want to do anything but sin, and I have a new nature that doesn't want to do anything except what pleases God. They're in conflict with each other. So Christians are, this is the way the New Testament describes us, we are saints, we don't have halos, but we're saints or holy ones because we're in Christ the Holy One. So we have a new identity. So Christians are saints who sometimes sin. So the sinful disposition is still there, but we're not meant to be characterized by it any longer. We are saints or holy ones who sometimes sin, just as you saw in the life of David. And as we know, any honest Christian knows, we sin. James says we sin a lot in a lot of ways. All of us do. That's not true of one or two. It's true of all of us. So, David's going to bring something up. Um, David knows that it's possible to be merely religious and to go through motions. But if we haven't been born again through faith in Christ, all we have is sin. It's all we do. And you see this in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. You know, every breath we take is a breath of rebellion against God until we've submitted to Christ in faith. So no matter how moral my life may look, if I haven't been converted through faith in Jesus, I'm a sinner sinning in everything I do, everything I say. It's all in rebellion against God. So we don't want to be surprised when we sin. We don't want to be surprised when others sin. Because though we're saints, we're still at times characterized by sin, by moral failure. So you get to verses 7 through 12, and this is really where David begins to make his plea. So there were five terms used to identify a sin. Now when he's asking God for forgiveness and restoration, he asks for it in 14 different ways. He sees that there's a lot of work for God to do in his life, not just to forgive him, but to restore him. To not only take away the guilt, but to restore his joy and his life. And several months before Nathan confronted David with his sin, have you guys ever carried a secret sin and nobody knows but you? And what does that feel like? Well, David was guilty of adultery and murder and he knew it for months. 
And he, he thought at that point nobody else knows. Joab knew, but nobody else knows, so I'm safe. But he's carrying the weight and the burden of that. So when he's finally unloaded, and by the way, God sending Nathan to David to say, you're the man, that was God's mercy and grace and compassion. David is living under this load of guilt and shame because nobody knows and he's not forgiven. His relationship with God has been put on standby because he's not restored to God through forgiveness. So at verse 2 is where this starts, and then we'll shift down to verse 7. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David says, morally, I'm like a person who's filthy. I've been in the mud bath and I'm filthy. And Lord, I want you to wash my clothing and make it white and clean again. So if you guys ever had the occasion where all you can put on is stinky, smelly, sweaty clothes, maybe, maybe not. (laughs) It doesn't feel good, it doesn't, and especially if you're clean, but you realize that's all the clothing I've got. It's not good. And all you want is you want clean laundry. Well, David says, I feel dirty. I feel filthy. And Lord, I'm asking you to wash me like laundry. Put me in dirty and bring me out clean. He also says, when he says that word cleanse me, cleanse has to do with this thought of ritual purification, so the, the worshiper in Israel needed to be ceremonially clean to go worship before God. And that's what David's saying here. Not only forgive me, not only wash me, but Lord, cleanse me in such a way that I'm free to come into your presence again and worship. And that's followed up in verse 7 with the same thought. He says there, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Do you remember in Exodus, in the Exodus account, when God tells the Jews, slay the lamb and put the blood around the door, you're going to use a hyssop branch. It's a little shrub. You're going to dip the hyssop into the blood and you're going to smear that. And that's why you're going to be passed over. But also in Leviticus, if you had ceremonially um, been unclean and you're going to be cleansed so you can be a, a free worshiper again, hyssop was used in that cleansing ceremony as well. So David's plea, just like verse 2, is, Lord, would you not just clean me on the outside, but would you cleanse me so thoroughly, cleanse my conscience, cleanse my emotions, so that I know I can come before you and I'm not holding back. That I'm really forgiven, I'm really cleansed, and I know that I can come into your presence with no restrictions and nothing that would keep me back. Uh, Isaiah 1.18 says the same thing about though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Lord, make me that clean. At verse 8, David prays, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Again, he's been languishing under the guilt of these sins for months before this confession. And he's felt like a man abused and beaten, but it's by his own hand. This is all by his doing. It's not someone else who's done this to him. He's feeling it because this is what he's done to himself. These are internal pangs he's asking God to replace with joy. At verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sins. You can see he's multiplying. Lord, please do this. Please do this. Please do this so that I can be free again before you. So here it's verse 9. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. God can't unknow anything, can he? God knows all things from all times. There's nothing he learns. He knows everything. David's plea is, Lord, would you not bring this up again? 
would you choose not to bring this up again? Would you forgive me so thoroughly that this is not an issue at all? And this is one of the things that we want to practice in forgiveness. God practices towards us. When we forgive someone horizontally, we're agreeing not to bring that sin up against them again in the future. If there's been real confession and forgiveness is really given, we're saying we're not going to bring that up again. That's what David's asking God to do with his sin. Lord, can you put this behind us so this isn't an issue anymore? Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David is asking here God to do something he cannot do for himself. So that word create is the same word out of Genesis 1.1. When God speaks the cosmos, when he creates the heavens and the earth, out of nothing, that's him. That's the same word David uses here. It's, Lord, would you give me something I can't give myself? Would you give me a clean heart? Would you, give me, would you renew the motives of my mind and my soul and my heart so that they're clean again? They're appropriate again. And only you can do that. I can't do it for myself. I need you and I'm asking you to make me clean in a way I can't get by myself. It's God who must give David and us a spirit and an attitude that's steadfast in pursuing him because our heart is clean and renewed. He says in verse 11, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, briefly, we just want to qualify this. You remember we say all Scripture is written for us, but it's not all written to us. This is an Old Testament concept that is not true for Christians. So here's the thing. In the Old Testament, the role and the relationship of the Holy Spirit was different than it is in the New Covenant from Acts 2 on. <clears throat> excuse me. David knew that, <clears throat> excuse me, oftentimes, well, not often, all the time, uh, for prophets, priests, and kings primarily, God would anoint them, He would send His Holy Spirit on them and in them to empower them for His service. So prophets, priests, and kings, you see this throughout the Old Testament, receive the Holy Spirit to empower them. Well, David is the second king of Israel. And the first king of Israel had a rather checkered past, and David knew what it was. And at times in King Saul's life, you see this before he's a king, and then later afterwards, King Saul has the Holy Spirit come on him, he prophesies, he acts in God's name for God's cause, and everything looks grand. But later, through his rebellious acts, God takes his Holy Spirit away from King Saul. And he tells Saul, you're not my king anymore, and your house is not going to continue in the line of kings. So David has seen the Holy Spirit removed from King Saul, his predecessor, so his prayer here isn't about a loss of salvation. We'll qualify this in just a second. But it's really about, Lord, I want to stay in the role you've given me. And I know it takes the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit for that to occur. Would you allow me to continue serving you by not taking your spirit back? Would you continue to empower me to serve as your servant ruler, your shepherd king? Would you do that? That's the request. For, so for today, so shift forward, we're under a new covenant. And we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's given to us. And we never lose the Holy Spirit. So in Matthew 28, when Jesus says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, it's the Holy Spirit who brings that about. 
So in John 14, 16, Jesus says to the disciples, the Father will give you another helper. It's the Holy Spirit. He'll be with you forever. Ephesians 1 says when, when you're saved, when you're born again, one of the things that happens is the Holy Spirit stamps you as God's. And that stamp, that seal, is the indication that not only do you belong to God now, but your, your eternal salvation is guaranteed because God has said, you're mine. So I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. That's the language of the New Testament for believers. 1 Corinthians six nineteen: your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought with a price. So the Christian, the believer, can never lose the Holy Spirit. The, the function of the Spirit was different under the Old Covenant and under the New. Now, we do want to say this quickly. The Holy Spirit is God, the third member of the Trinity. And guys, God is holy. God is holy. The, the Spirit in you and I that is God's presence, that is Christ to us, is holy. And so Scripture says, the Apostle Paul says, a couple things about what we can do to affect God's presence in us. He says we can grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. So you and I grieve the Holy Spirit of God through sin, especially. We're doing those things we know God doesn't want us to do. And God Himself, who's holy and sinless, is in us and with us as we sin. And He's holy, and this is not a good thing. We can also quench the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5. And that has more to do with the Spirit is encouraging me, telling me, pushing me, showing me to do something, and I'm saying no. The Holy Spirit is kindling a fire, and I'm throwing water on it. So we don't want to say our sin has no effect on our experience because we're saved and saved forever. The Holy Spirit, when we grieve Him, do you know what He does to us? He grieves us. And just as David's carrying that weight of guilt and shame, that's partly the work of the Spirit of God to bring him to repentance. And when we grieve the Spirit, and when we quench the Spirit, the Spirit is going to let us know about it. And if you're an unhappy Christian, or in my states when I'm unhappy, one of the questions I should ask myself, Lord, is there sin I need to confess? Or are you calling me to do something? I've just been saying no. Because the Holy Spirit's going to motivate me, just as God sent Nathan to David, the Spirit is going to motivate me to repentance. So we're affected. Not our salvation, not our standing. We're children of God. That doesn't change. But our experience of that relationship varies greatly depending on if we're grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit that we have. Verse 12 is really big. Uh, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with willing heart. David sinned, and on one hand, he says, Lord, I need a new heart. I need a new set of affections. I need to be a clean in a way that only you can cleanse me. But then he says, Lord, I need joy in a way that I can't get by myself. Because you know what sin robs us of? Sin robs us of joy. Uh, joyful Christians are not sinning because we're grieving the Spirit and the Spirit is grieving us. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit, a spirit that's able to keep going in the direction you want me to. Sin leaves us feeling guilty, ashamed, sick, depressed, at odds with ourself and God. 
And David's prayer is that forgiveness is so complete on God's part and so fully received on his part that joy is the outcome. Guys, this sounds strange. Uh, We had a conversation with a lovely young lady not all that long ago. We were talking about forgiveness and and, uh, restoration through faith in Christ. And she said, it sounds too easy. Trust Jesus and your sins are forgiven. And we said, yeah, it, it's easy on us. It wasn't easy on Jesus. It sounds easy. It's easy on us, not easy on Jesus. Well, this thought of joy, have you ever had the experience where you knew you'd sinned and you'd gone and you'd, you'd said to the Lord, Lord, I blew it again and I'm sorry. And then you went away and you, you thought, maybe I wasn't sorry enough. I don't feel cleansed. I don't feel forgiven. And so maybe I need to feel worse about it than I did before. Maybe a, a little self, you know, Martin Luther, he used to whip himself, you know, like a good Roman Catholic mom. Maybe, maybe I can create some more pain. And really the thought is, if I feel bad enough, God can forgive me. If I feel bad enough long enough, God can forgive me. But you see, David says, when I come to you and I confess... And Lord, you forgive me and you restore me. Would you give me joy again? And guys, I would argue this. If we go to God and confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9 says we know he'll forgive us. So we'll talk about heart in just a second. But we go to God with our sin. We know we've sinned. We confess it. We know God will forgive us. He promises, 1 John 1, 9. Joy should be the outcome. And if we don't feel that joy restored in God after we've confessed we haven't received God's forgiveness the way we're meant to so we want to be clear that we're by faith taking God at his word that if we've brought our sin to him and we've confessed it we've agreed with him he forgives us our sin first John 1 9 and he cleanses us same same prayer David had cleanses us from all unrighteousness When we get up and go out of that meeting with God, we should have joy. Now, sometimes we're not getting into the impact of sin around us this morning. That's not where the psalm goes. But sometimes you might feel bad that I did something and somebody else is still affected. And we can feel bad about that. But there's the sense between us and God that joy is the fruit of forgiveness and restoration fully realized. We want to make sure we get that, that joy is what we get when God forgives us. Uh, Verses 13 through 17, David's humbled himself. He's confessed to God his failures. um, And he's going to ask for a fruit ministry afterwards. So I need a clean heart. I need your joy. Joy is strength. Scripture says joy is our strength. Then he says this, verse 13, When this has been accomplished, then I will teach transgressor your your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, from murder, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open, Lord, my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So after confession, David says, Lord, I want to brag on you to others. In fact, that's why he wrote the song, of course. Lord, I want to tell others how compassionate and merciful and gracious you are. Having received forgiveness, I want to turn around and tell others what you'll do for them as well. So he says, I want to tell it 
and I want to sing it. This is so important that when we worship before you, Lord, in the temple, we're going to sing your praises because you're a merciful, compassionate, forgiving, and restoring God. Jesus said, those who are forgiven much love much in Luke 7. So there's a woman, she's a sinner, and the guys think if Jesus is a prophet, he'd know. And, and Jesus in part says, those who are forgiven much love much. But we would also say this, those who are forgiven much praise much. Those who are forgiven much testify much or witness to others about what they've known and receive from God also. If we find that our worship of God is half-hearted or hesitant or not much there, or if we find we come with the saints on Sunday morning to worship and our heart just isn't in it, now there's lots of reasons potentially for that, but one of them could be we've forgotten what God's done for us in Christ. We've forgotten that God's forgiven us all our sins, given us new natures, new hearts, and we have much to tell others about. And we have much to sing about when we gather together. So if we find ourselves slow, we should ask ourselves, have, have I forgotten what God has done for me in Christ? Or do I know what God has done for me in Christ? Am I Christ's at all? It's a good question too. Have I in fact received that initial saving salvation work in Christ? Verse 16, he says, You won't delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You won't be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices, God, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Now, David's not arguing against the Mosaic Code. God required sacrifice. God ordained sacrifice. He's not speaking against that. But at least two things he's referring to. David was guilty of two, breaking two laws that both, God said, deserved death, the death penalty. Adultery and murder were both meant to be, to the, uh, the criminal, the defendant, would face death. And guys, the law provided no sacrifice for those sins. There's no law that provides for forgiveness through sacrifice of murder and adultery. It, it didn't exist. So David knows you haven't prescribed anything that I could offer you to be forgiven. So my forgiveness here now can't be predicated on, I can do this thing and you'll forgive me. Nope, because the law didn't provide for forgiveness for capital offenses. And David's guilty of two. But here's the other thing. He also knew that it was possible to simply go through the motions. So he's saying God wants a broken and a contrite heart. God wants me to see my sin as he sees it. He wants me to feel about my sin how he feels about it. He doesn't want me to simply hypocritically go to the temple and offer the offering and say I'm forgiven when I'm not. Right? So you, Jesus comes to a religious community that lives under the law. And do you remember what he says to them? He says, what Isaiah prophesied is true of you. This people draws near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. So David's saying, Lord, I'm not just going through the motions. I'm not being a religious hypocrite and I'm bringing the offering as if we're okay when we're not. So David acknowledges we're meant to bring to God in our confession to say, God, I sinned against you and against what you consider right. I want to quickly add this. I don't know if anybody else has ever faced this. I've come to God more than once and I've said, Lord, I've sinned because your word says what I did was sin and I don't feel bad about it. 
I don't share your view of it. I don't have the emo- your emotion about it. And so when that's the case, what do we do? We say, Lord, please give me your heart, your view of my sin. So we don't want to pretend, Lord, I'm confessing, but I'm not. <laughs> my mom would make me apologize. Did you ever do this? I'd say to my brother, I'm sorry, but I don't mean it. <laughs> I, I obeyed my mom. I said, I'm sorry, and I don't mean it. So David's saying that's what we don't want to do. We want to we come to God with real contrition for what we've done wrong. And that's what David's saying. Lord, I'm bringing you a broken, contrite heart. There's not a sacrifice you've provided for me to bring, but I'm bringing your view of my sin, trusting that you'll forgive me. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, and this is a good warning. The Apostle Paul there says, Godly sorrow, so God's version of sorrow for my sin, it brings repentance, change of heart and mind towards my sin without regret. It's all positive. It's all good. But he also says in contrast, sort of what David's referring to, there's, a, there's, a, there's an ungodly, worldly kind of sorrow that doesn't produce repentance, it produces death. So I say I'm sorry, but nothing comes from it because I'm not actually sorry. So there's a sorrow of the world, it produces death. If we feel, Lord, we know we should feel differently about this, but we don't, then we confess that to God. Lord, I don't have your view on this yet. My affections aren't restored yet. Would you give me, not only in that clean heart, but would you give me eyes to see this the way you see it? And God will. Uh, Verses 18 and 19 uh, this is a big deal. We're saying that this is all about David's vertical relationship with God. But f- friends, David's sin, David is fully forgiven. And David is restored. But David knows because God told him through Nathan, but your household is cursed because of what you've done. I'm going to fully forgive you. I'm going to restore you. But the people around you that you love and care about, they're going to be harmed notably because of what you've done you and i can't sin in private in the sense that it doesn't affect other people if i have a hidden sin that nobody else knows about it affects me and because it affects me it affects everyone i interact with so david knows my sin can have negative consequences on people around me so he says in verses 18 and 19 Uh, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, or the city, God's saints. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David's asking that the fruit of his sin doesn't adversely impact the nation. And of course, there's other instances in which David's sins have negative consequences, not just these, on the whole nation. He does a census later in his life, and God harms the nation because of David's sin. So David is saying, Lord, I don't want my sin to curse your people. I want to have a clean heart before you, and I want myself and the nation to be able to come before you freely in worship. I don't want this to hold others back from being able to interact freely with you. So, closing. God's ability to forgive us any and all sin is because Jesus has borne the penalty for our every sin 
in his own body on the cross. That's not coming up in Psalm 51, but Psalm 51 can't be true apart from Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. God can't justly forgive anyone apart from Christ. We were truly lost in sin from birth, from conception, and God truly found us in Christ. We're truly dead in sin, absolutely, Ephesians uh, 2, 1 and 2, and God makes us alive in Christ. All of this is ultimately through Christ. We're truly guilty of daily sin, and in our confession, God declares us not guilty in Christ. Christ's sacrifice is adequate to save the worst sinner from eternal death. And the thing for each of us is, is Christ our Savior? Everything's gravy going forward if Christ is our Savior. If we ever come to the point where we say, we know, Lord, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me, a sinner. Phrase out of the New Testament, out of the Gospels. Uh, Jesus, I trust you to save me from my sins. Have we come to God through Christ in saving faith? Is that our story? And then Christ's sacrifice is adequate to cleanse the believer's worst sins and restore them to full fellowship and joy. So we need to know that the fruit of confession and repentance is joy. Joy is the fruit of what God's restoring us in that relationship brings about. Like David, we're meant to be proclaimers of God's goodness in Christ precisely because we know our own sins are forgiven through the mercies of God in Christ. And last word before we stand, this. So... That 1981 uh, murder trial. So the next day, on the front page of the Capitol Journal, big bold headlines that he was found not guilty, but it quoted the assailant. And his quote was from Romans 8. And he said, There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That was powerful. That was on the front page of the Capitol Journal. From a man who knew he'd done something... And the jury said not guilty, and he went away feeling forgiven by God and relieved. I don't know whatever became of his life after that, but it was a great lesson. Well, rise, and I want to close this time by reading from Psalm 32. That's the parallel uh, psalm to Psalm 51. This explains a little bit more about what David experienced. Are we good? Read with me, please. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer." I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin.